This is the Global Crossroads podcast. Each episode will bring you stories about global issues such as climate change, violence against women, fundamentalism, migration, and the rise of right-wing populism. The show is hosted by Chrissy Stroop, Deidre Sugiuchi, and myself, Deepak Singh. Welcome to Global Crossroads, a podcast that explores issues of global significance via conversations with experts and people with remarkable global stories. I'm Chrissy Stroop, dialing in from Portland, Oregon. And this is Deirdre Sugiuchi in Athens, Georgia. And hello, this is Deepak Singh signing in from Tampa, Florida. Yeah, uh, today we're all very excited to have uh, Jeff Charlotte on the show. He's probably a man that needs no introduction for much of our audience, but I'll just say a few things about him. Jeff is Associate Professor of English at Dartmouth. He's a contributing editor for Harper's and Rolling Stone, and he's published in too many major outlets to name, really. So, um, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. So I wanted to start perhaps today by asking you about some of your early work and why it is that you have always um, exhibited such a, a deep interest in religion. So can you tell us a little bit about some of your early projects like Killing the Buddha and, um, you know, maybe how that led to your, your later work that looks at international networks and connections among what we might call religious populists? Sure. Killing the Buddha, um, which I should say is a, it's a Buddhist saying. So if you're sitting out there and saying, what's that about? Um, uh, the idea being in a nutshell, a story about a monk who's traveling down the road and thinks he meets the Buddha and he goes and he tells his teacher and his teacher sort of takes a long drag on his pipe and sort of thinks about this and then reaches out and sort of gives him a smack and says, if you meet the Buddha on the road, you kill him. And um, which is to say, um, when you think you have arrived at certainty, when you think you have all the answers, um, that is precisely the moment when you begin asking yourself and of the world more difficult questions. And it began for me with uh, a wonderful writer named Peter Manso. Um, and he and I started a, uh, a, an online magazine. We were interested in writing about religion, um, but we were not religious. Um, we were fascinated with the sort of the role of religion in the world, but we were not drawn to the academic study of it. Um, we were not drawn to the practice of it. Um, we were drawn to it as as writers for, for each of our, our, our personal reasons. So, so we made a, a web magazine, and then out of that we made a book um, traveling around the country, sort of exploring the varieties of religious experience, um, which led me to this story, uh, The Family, uh, about this fundamentalist movement. And, and there's really, my, my interest in religion, there's actually a scene in the beginning of the, the series on Netflix, and which is a dramatization of uh, when I was a, a young man, uh, my mother died of breast cancer. And as she was dying, she had been raised in sort of a Pentecostal tradition, but was really had left that behind and was interested in all kinds of things, was kind of a hippie. And, but as she was dying, she invited uh, people of various faiths to come in and pray with her. And I realized there was a distinction in their prayers and that some prayed for salvation 
um, for uh, for her to go to heaven or for what was to come next. And that really wasn't what she was interested in. She didn't want to die. She was looking for prayers of deliverance. Um, and that tension between the idea of deliverance in this world and salvation in the next uh, has ended up shaping so much of my work and interest in religion. And, and I think that's why the director of the, the Netflix series decided to, to start with that moment. In my 20s, I stumbled my way in. And what I found is a secretive Christian organization called The Family that had been hiding in plain sight for over 80 years. This was a group with tentacles around the world. A humble example of leadership that the world has never seen. A breathtaking enmeshment of church and state. Can you briefly discuss what exactly the family is and the change they're affecting in global politics? Sure, yeah. Well, it, this, this began for me way back in 2001. I was working on this book, Killing the Buddha. I was living in New York uh, after, uh, at the time of, of 9-11. And um, an old friend said, you know, my brother is coming to town. Could you meet with him? Because we're afraid he's joined a cult. So I agreed to meet the guy. I'd known him for years. Um, and he'd come, he said, to look at the ruins of the Twin Towers. And as he put it, to survey the ruins of secularism. And he felt that he had found something much more powerful. And he began telling me about this unusual movement he had joined um, that he just called the family. And he described mainly the involvement of young men. And invited me to come see for myself. And I, so I did. I, I went to a house they had for young men, sort of being trained for future leadership called Ivanwald. And, and pretty quickly realized that that was just one small node in this larger network. In fact, the young men were also being used as sort of uh, assistants and aides for politicians. And important politicians, influential politicians, mostly conservative. Uh, I remember Jesse Helms was around. I remember former Reagan Attorney General Ed Meese came by. Uh, I had just missed a visit by uh, Laura Bush, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and it wasn't just it wasn't just a sort of the Christian right that I think many people assume to be a sort of a, a, a unique American kind of exceptionalist problem. Um, we had a visit from the Prime Minister of Norway, a conservative leader named uh, Bondovic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I saw it was this international thing, and I ended up spending, going to the archives of this group, which they had dumped at the Billy Graham Center in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Um, and uh, this is a group that is dedicated to invisibility. That's their term. Uh, the more visible you can make your organization, says the longtime leader, the more influence it will have. And yet they dumped 592 boxes of documents going back to the 1930s. And what I discovered was, I think the oldest, uh, arguably the most influential and certainly the most secretive Christian conservative organization in Washington, um, and also the most internationalist, um, the one, one that is, has always been interested, not as much actually in legislative victories in the United States as building a global worldwide movement, a family, they say, of 200 world leaders bound together through this network um, to bring about uh, government by God. So trying to preserve their legacy in some way that they wanted to make sure it was there while at the same time thinking no one would go look it up? They're, they're utterly uninterested in their legacy. Um, you know, that the, sort of the theological slogan of the movement is Jesus plus nothing. Um, and that means uh, 
no theology. It means they stripped away most of scripture and also means history. They don't know their own history. The boxes were terribly organized, filled with, I mean, you know, they were dumping confidential government documents in there, correspondence mm-hmm. between presidents and heads of state. They just had a lot of paperwork and they needed some place to put it. You know, we shouldn't throw it away. And they dumped it at the Billy Graham Center. And despite their sort of commitment to invisibility or secrecy, um, this goes back to uh, um, the late 60s when uh, in their documents you discover this is the time has come to submerge the institutional image of the organization, to go underground. Um, Despite that, they've been operating since 1935 um, with, uh, until until this century, until uh, 2002, really, um, without much scrutiny. Mm-hmm. The, I think they were just accustomed to nobody asking to, uh, very hard questions, even though at times people had, but the press never did any follow-up, not out of any conspiracy, but the power of conventional wisdom about what the Christian right is so strong, and this group didn't fit that category that they just missed. I I definitely want to come back to that in just a second, um, but can you just talk about some, what what's really interesting to me is that you have these dictators that are associated with these people, I mean, and you're talking Idi Amin, you're talking Gaddafi, you're, I mean, you're talking all these people, but it's also wrapped in this benevolent prayer group. Can you discuss that in the National Prayer Breakfast, that, the role that plays? Uh, so the group began, I mean, to, to explain that sort of embrace of, uh, of dictators, the group began in 1935 when the founder, a man named Abraham Barady, has this vision from God or a direct conversation with God, he believes. And God is in the midst of the Great Depression. He's a fairly influential guy, Barady. He sort of is a minister to the wealthy, um, travels around the country doing Bible studies for Henry Ford, uh, steel executives, folks like that. And he thinks the Great Depression is a punishment from God. And he thinks God comes to him and says, Christianity has been getting it wrong for 2,000 years in as much as there's this uh, focus on or rhetoric of uh, the poor, the suffering, the down and out, that rather, he says, that God has called him to be a missionary to those whom he calls the up and out, those who are powerful. And he believes that God tells him the way we're going to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth is through um, more power for the powerful. Um, and that becomes the means by which they seek out not the righteous by any definition, but those whom they feel have been chosen for power. And it leads them, uh, after World War II, to embrace a lot of former uh, Nazi war criminals. And by, um, by the late 50s, they're moving overseas and um, they identify... Um, they'll, they'll send out these congressional delegations to, to meet with figures like Papadoc Duvalier, the dictator of Haiti, or Sahardo in Indonesia, who killed about a million of his own citizens in the coup that brought him to power. Um, uh, Ferdinand Marcos from the Philippines, um, the generals that ruled Brazil, um, uh, Sani Abacha in Nigeria. I mean, it's really, it's a gallery of those whom they themselves call, and this is a quote, they say, murderers, dictators, and thieves. Those are their people. And they say, look, we're going to bring these people in to meet Jesus man to man. Now, you would almost say, someone, and, and some defenders will say, oh, well, great. You know, they're, um, 
uh, it would be great if someone went to uh, a, a killer like Sonny Abacha and uh, shared the gospel. Um, that doesn't happen. Not only does it not happen, they are, are explicitly opposed to that kind of accountability. Um, they practice uh, a prayer and a politics of, of access and really more in service of an idea that they also call biblical capitalism. Um, the idea that there's a sort of a, uh, that free markets are going to be the so-called invisible hand of God to correct the abuses of the world. I wanted to ask uh, Jeff if you can talk about a little bit more about the family's doc doctrine versus the conventional reading of the Bible a bit more, how and how are they different? Yeah, I, I think that's very important and, and probably something that, that uh, your listeners are, 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 are better attuned to than most. Um, through uh, Chrissy, I'm especially familiar with your work. Um, uh, I, you know. One of the one of the thing one one of the sort of the the variations is something we try and show in the series in uh, the fifth episode called the Wolf King, which is a parable that comes from the longtime leader Doug Coe, and a rhetoric that I heard throughout my time living with them and then in their archives and over the years. I say, you know, uh, everyone's focused on the sheep. You know, Jesus cares about the sheep. Well, what about the wolves? Who's loving the wolves? And they say we are. Uh, they take care of the wolves. And you see that really embodied in this kind of uh, sermon that Doug Coe, the leader, gives. And we actually open the series with a little clip from it. But it's not an aberration. It's not a one-off. It's core teaching. How do you best understand who Jesus is? Is it through the metaphor of the lamb or the lion? No. Um, you look at uh, some of the worst killers in history. They'll say, Hitler, Lenin, Mao. Sometimes he says Pol Pot or Osama bin Laden. You can see uh, it is not ideologically bound. It is not a communist nor fascist. The common denominator is strength and brute power. He says, look at Mao. Mao uh, would have the Red Guard. They would take a young man and bring in his mother and put her on a table. And then the young man had to chop her head off for an axe. And he would do it. And if you're waiting for the denunciation, it's not coming. He says, that's a covenant. That's a pledge. Uh, this, these are Doug Coe's own words. He says, that's what we need for Jesus. That's Jesus plus nothing. I heard him give this exact teaching to Congressman Todd Teahart, a conservative Republican from Kansas. Uh, Jesus plus nothing. He says, like the mafia, like Pol Pot, like Osama bin Laden. Um, this, needless to say, no matter how abusive we see, how much abuse we see in our sort of mainstream conservative evangelical churches, you won't find many preaching this rhetoric. It's, it is an odd, odd, odd theology. Um, the other way in which they depart from more conventional evangelicalism is they have a, a concentric ring idea um, that they believe um, that Jesus had different sets of truths for an inner circle. Of, of, of three apostles, and then the rest of the apostles got a different message, and then the the first people to hear got a different message, and then for the masses, they can't really handle the truth, so for them, we have a different story. It's a variation on, on, on Plato's idea of the noble lie, or of the secular uh, uh, theorist Leo Strauss's very similar idea that the masses can't handle the truth. It's a deeply, deeply anti-democratic idea. Um, that uh, um, that breaks away 
from uh, the conventional evangelical tradition, I think. There's also something almost gnostic about that, right? Which is which is pretty weird, uh, because certainly, you know, evangelicals and uh, other low, little o orthodox, lowercase o orthodox Christians uh, consider agnosticism to be a heresy. But to have secret knowledge only for a few is a, is a gnostic teaching. Of course, um, you know that sense of su- superiority for the chosen few, however, certainly also infuses more sort of mainstream Orthodox Christianity. Um, it's it's true you don't hear that that rhetoric in the churches uh, so much, but the emphasis on on obedience is definitely there. Um, Deirdre and I both grew up in radical evangelicalism. Uh, she had uh, an, an even worse and more abusive experience of it than I did by far. Um, but I can definitely see a connection between this whole idea of obedience as a virtue and the family's theology of Jesus plus nothing. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I mean, some of the family's rhetoric is so explicit and extreme, you're probably not going to find it in the pulpit, but there's a convergence. And, and to me, I mean, the argument that I make in the book and that is uh, implicit in the series um, is... Uh, is sort of an answer to the, a question I've long struggled with, which is um, how does how does American fundamentalism endure? And if you go back to the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, that famous trial about mm-hmm. evolution, and you know most people think that that was the trial at which the creationists were really uh, really defeated. And there's a movie Inherit the Wind. They don't look at the history. In fact, the creationists won that trial. But it is true that newspapers all across the country. 1925. So fundamentalism is dead. It's gone. It's, it's, it's not going to be a, a force in American life. And the press has been declaring that with regularity about every five to 10 years ever since. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And um, I, I just read a review called on, on the Atlantic, right? Called the real con and Netflix's the family. It seems like you're act, they're acting like you're making a mountain out of a molehill just because Ensign's now a vet. You know, I mean, why is the so-called liberal media not taking the threat of this seriously? It's such a frustrating thing. I mean, you're absolutely right that they don't take it seriously enough. And as you know, this is one of the things I've been trying very hard to change uh, over the last few years via uh, collective visibility with hashtag campaigns and that sort of thing. And it's it's very hard to get the American mainstream public, chattering classes anyway, to take seriously the idea that we face an authoritarian threat from Christianity. And of course, I don't mean all Christianity, but I mean certain strains of it that really are pretty much in charge under the current regime. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I mean, I mean, that's to me is, is so, so you have that. I mean, part of the reason the press misses it is because, look, if you have populist movements, uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. or Jr. or, or you know, I mean, you can go back through history and find them. They rise in the fall and they are subject to scandal. And every time they collapse, um, every time their ratings go down, uh, the conventional press declares them done. Every time they fail to move a, a, an immediate electoral voting block or they win a particular, le- lose a particular legislative battle, the press sees, okay, this is done. And it's really when you look to me, I think, at elite fundamentalism, uh, as exemplified by the family, you have these sort of twin strands of a populist front and an an avant-garde of American fundamentalism. And while the populist front rises and falls, 
Um, the elites just sort of keep going quietly, and they're there as a foundation for those moments of convergence, such as the one we're living in right now. Um, and so that, in fact, the Christian right can come roaring out of the gates, surprising everybody. You know, 2008, when I published this book, Obama was elected. I got so many questions like, well, why would anyone care about this now since the Christian right is no longer a force in American life? It, you know, we're not, we're, it's very recently in the past, is a deep A historicism. It's reflected in the press. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not the first reporter to, to write about this. Before me, we see in the series, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Lisa Getter for the LA Times spent a year on a deep investigation front page of the LA Times, uh, looking at the ways in which this organization had, for instance, um, functioned uh, as a liaison uh, between the US government and the most murderous forces in Central America, looking at the ways in which it was going and working with um, pretty bad actors in the Middle East, no pickup. You go back before that, 1975, Playboy magazine does uh, an expose, Robert Shear famed investigative journalist, um, looking at the way this organization, the family, was operating as an off-the-books, which is to say illegal, bank for congressmen. There's a little bit of noise, and then it's gone. Dan Rather, after Watergate, said, what the hell is going on here? There's a little bit of noise, and then it goes away. 1959, the Washington Post uh, looks at the ways in which the Department of Defense is making... uh, funds and military transport available for this private sectarian fundamentalist organization. A little bit of noise, and then it goes away. And, and you bring that right up into the present, Deirdre, with that uh, uh, Atlantic piece. And it's not the only one looking at and saying, I mean, the, the responses that drive me craziest is you get a response from an ostensibly liberal reporter or critic who says, I don't get it. It's just a group of guys who say they want to run government according to the principles of Jesus. What's wrong with that? And you just want to hold your head in your hands and say, <laughs> here's this thing called the First Amendment. Um, but also this kind of, there's a kind of arrogance in that these fundamentalists aren't as easy to make fun of. The, the liberal press, and I say that as a member of it, where it is largely liberal, it's sort of centrist liberal. Uh, it's secular. Um, uh, it prefers its fundamentalist, southern, sweaty, pulpit-pounding Bible thumpers, uh, sexual hypocrites. Uh, when I mean, this reporting is known because of Senator John Ensign, Governor Mark Sanford, then Governor Mark Sanford, and Representative Chip Pickering, three congressmen or three politicians who had uh, uh, affairs that were covered up by the family. And I had been at that point trying to say, let's look at uh, their their involvement in the destruction of Somalia. I remember one producer saying to me, what's a Som- Somalia? They don't care about that. Now, but a politician with his pants down around his ankles, now that's important news. Breaking, breaking news. And that's about the level of sophistication when it comes to religion that we have in the press. And it is just damning us to this endless repetition of, of Christian right power. It's absolutely the normalization of extremism. And another thing that is endlessly frustrating to me about the liberal press is that, I mean, I think there's another side there. They they either do these scandals that, that you've been talking about because those are fun to do. Uh, here's another Christian hypocrite caught in a scandal. But they also give voice 
to, um, you know, more respectable evangelicals who are really great at cultivating good PR, putting their best foot forward. It's very often Wheaton graduates. I mean, Elizabeth Diaz is now the head religion reporter at the New York Times. She is an evangelical. A lot of her reporting, her, her reporting on Catholics is actually good, but her reporting on evangelicals basically consists of, here, let's look at these five entirely unrepresentative people and insinuate that evangelicalism is now becoming progressive. Um, you know, Michael Gerson, he's so he's so mealy-mouthed. He wants to impose theocracy, but politely, you know, and he writes for the Washington Post, of course, and Sarah Pulliam Bailey at the Washington Post is also a Wheaton graduate, and Michael Gerson is a Wheaton graduate. And why does anyone think this is responsible journalism? I mean, look, you can be a Wheaton graduate, you can be an evangelical and be an excellent journalist. You could be, but they aren't. <laughs> and I, I mean, it seems like they've got a certain bias. Yeah, and, and and I think you and I, I uh, you know, Chrissy, you wrote recently about Michael Gerson's stuff, and I think that's excellent because. And the reality is, you then get lots of sort of secular press um, that don't know any better uh, going to their colleague who went to Wheaton as evangelical, and who should I really be talking to? And they're going to tell you about the sort of the you know, the most polished, respectable person because that's who they want to see powerful and influential. It's not who is right. Um, you know, uh, so this is how we, we get endless interviews, um, with Michael Gerson and we don't get actually enough scrutiny for Jerry Falwell Jr. until, uh, until, until there's a scandal with a pool boy. Now that's new. <laughs> now, my problem, my problem with Jerry Falwell Jr. is not that he may be a closeted guy who is scrambling. That's not the problem with Jerry Falwell Jr. My problem with Governor Mark Sanford was not that he had a mistress. My problem was his politics. My problem was his combination, as he put it, of, of Ayn Rand, uh, extreme laissez-faire economics, and uh, his idea of biblical moralism. I don't care who they fuck. I care <laughs> what you do to us, to every, everyday people. And, and and, you know, and to me, also, a lot of that happens. The press is also sort of built to look at cor very straightforward corruption, you know, money in an envelope changing hands. Um, and so they're constantly saying, well, what are they doing that's illegal? And now some of the members of the family are doing things illegal. In the series, we focus on uh, uh, former Congressman Mark Siljan, who's actually convicted of conspiracy uh, for money laundering. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's almost too much Islamic terrorist money. Uh, that was being paid uh, to uh, lobby uh, for uh, weaker oil sanctions on, on Sudan. Um, uh, but mostly these guys are not breaking laws. They're making laws. It requires us to think, okay, wait a minute. What, how, how are these decisions getting made? And, and the other part of it that I think is, is that goes beyond the Michael Gersons and so on is this kind of way in which the name Jesus, and the families vary, uh, uh, they understand this. You say Jesus, people don't ask too many questions. They don't ask the question, well, what do you mean by Jesus? What's your idea of Jesus? I remember when, when John Ashcroft was attorney general, uh, and uh, he's, very, he was, he's a longtime member of the family since the very beginning of his career. He's a fundamentalist. Uh, he Famous for covering boobs on statues. Exactly, yes, in the Justice Department. And, and I think it was a New Yorker profile, did a profile noting that he started every day with a prayer meeting. And then that's it. They don't ask, well, what do you pray for and to whom do you pray? And when you say you pray to God, who do you think God is? 
and how does that authority move? They don't ask those basic theological questions because they feel it would be disrespectful. In fact, it would be respectful. Let's take fundamentalists seriously. Let's take them as thinking people with ideas, with arguments, and let's dig in and investigate. Here's the other thing that really frustrates me uh, about sort of the, the, the liberal American public's understanding of religion and Christianity. You say Jesus, no one asks questions because everyone's like, oh, Jesus is great. Jesus is wonderful. But, you know, it's, it's not like the Gospels, let alone the entire Bible, are, are nothing but the Sermon on the Mount and the nicer parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Personally, I think that Jesus plus nothing theology, you can find it in the Gospels when Jesus says things like, whoever does not hate his mother or brother or sister and even his own life cannot be my disciple. I mean, there is an authoritarian side to Jesus in the Gospels, right? So it's a multivalent uh, textual tradition, and you can, you can have a liberal interpretation that is still a valid form of Christianity. Thank you all for joining us on Global Crossroads today, uh, featuring our interview with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family and C Street, and uh, producer of uh, the current Netflix docu-series on The Family, uh, which I definitely recommend watching. Um, you can find Jeff online. He's active and interacts on Twitter. Um, his work is published in you know, GQ, the New York Times, Harper's, pretty much everywhere. Um, you can find us online as well. Uh, the Global Crossroads podcast itself has a, um, a Twitter page. It's at Crossroads underscore pod. So if you like the podcast, please follow us there. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, we also have a Patreon uh, that... Uh, we would greatly appreciate you funding this project as we put a lot of effort into it. Uh, you can find me, Chrissy Stroop, on Twitter at um, C underscore Stroop, S-T-R-O-O-P. And my website featuring my blog called Not Your Mission Field is at cstroop.com. And uh, remember, too, that we welcome listener feedback and questions. If you want to ask a question to any of us hosts here or to our guests, uh, you can add us on Twitter, and you can also use the hashtag AskGlobalCrossroads. Thanks for tuning in for the part one of the show. Stay tuned to listen to Jeff's answer to Chrissy's question in part two. And Global Crossroads podcast is now available on iTunes. Please subscribe and review. Thank you for tuning in. Mm-hmm.